Hi, I'm Kristen, and you're listening to A Public Church Podcast. We'd love to connect with you through our social media at A Public Church or through our website, publicchurch.com. Thanks for listening. Now, before you have a seat, we're gonna do a little something. So if you guys could remain standing, if you're at home, this is your invitation to maybe stand up if somehow you sat through that. And so here's what we're gonna do. We're gonna work on our posture. Now I'm going somewhere with this, so just trust me for a moment. Work on our posture. Now, according to the Harvard Medical School, I don't know about you, but when they say something, I'm just like, okay, Harvard Medical School, cool. I agree with whatever you say. So here's the thing. They say, here's what good posture is. It means our chin is parallel to the floor. Everybody good with that? Chin's parallel to the floor. We gotta get our shoulders in the right place. That means lift your shoulders up. Audience participation, lift them up. Roll them back and relax. Our back should have a neutral spine, which sounds really weird. It just means that we're not arching too much. We're not slumping. And basically, our weight should be even and everything facing forward. This is your time to evaluate who you came with or someone just down the road like, how's your posture looking? Come on, help each other. How's our posture? Decent. Okay, now let's have a seat and do the same thing so we can have good posture when we sit down. Basically, we're doing a squat. Okay, how are we doing? Feel pretty good? Are some of you concerned that like you're gonna have to keep this up the whole time? You're not, that's not the point. <laughs> but this Harvard Medical School article tells us that posture matters because there's some health benefits to it. Simple health benefits like the fact that less wear and tear on our joints. In a crazy way, this actually helps athletic performance because when we have the proper posture, we're working on our balance and that's gonna make us better at working out, less injury prone, all those type of things. So there's some benefits to it. So posture matters and posture sends a message. If we walk into a room and we have good posture, here's what we're communicating. We're communicating some self-confidence and we're communicating respect towards the person because I respect you enough to show up looking like I respect myself and respect you to have a conversation. Now, there is another definition of posture because welcome to the English language, correct? You got one word that means like 14 different things. So another definition of posture is our approach, the way we're dealing with something. So two definitions, one is external, how we carry ourselves. One is internal, how we mentally approach people and situations. And if you're taking notes, this may be the most profound thing that I've ever said. Are you ready for this? Okay, this is big time. Ready? Posture communicates posture. That's it. That's the best I've got. It's just downhill from here. Thank you. Thank you. Worked all week on that one. But seriously, posture communicates posture. How we carry ourselves communicates our mental approach towards something or someone. Think about it. If you walk into a meeting or a class, depending on where you're at in life, and you just look all like you just rolled out of bed, your hair's messed up, nothing matches, you do have on all your clothing, hopefully, maybe you're missing a shoe, you just like, and you walk in, you don't have anything to write with, nothing to even take notes, and you're just kind of like, oh, hey, you're just kind of roll. What are you communicating about that meeting or that class? It doesn't matter. It's not worth my time to, to get ready. Now, if you walk into that same meeting or class and it looks like you've taken some time to get ready, you've got a notebook or maybe your computer, you're ready to take notes, what are you communicating? Respect. Communicating, hey, this meeting, this class matters. So our posture, the way we carry ourselves, communicates posture, communicates our approach. So the title of today's talk is The Posture of a Jesus Follower. 
The title of today's talk is The Posture of a Jesus Follower, because posture matters, and we are communicating something with both how we carry ourselves and also with what we think about people. So to dive into this idea, we're actually gonna be in Romans 12, nine through 21. It's our text for the series. And if you wanna go ahead and go there, let's just dive into a little bit of tension and acknowledge that if you don't follow Jesus, maybe you're watching, maybe you're in the room and you don't follow Jesus, you may have had some bad experiences with Jesus followers in the way we carry ourselves or in our mental approach towards you or someone you love. And to that, I just wanna say, I'm sorry. We fail so much in this area. And I also wanna tell you the truth. We're gonna fail again. Because today isn't about look at me or look at any other Jesus follower and try to imitate a certain person. Today is going, what does Jesus want our posture to be? How, how does Jesus want us to carry ourselves? How does Jesus want us to mentally approach people in situations because only he is our perfect pattern. So as we think about this, as we look at Romans 12, nine through 21, the goal is that we're able to see intersections, that's the title of our series, intersections between how we follow Jesus and our everyday lives. Why? Because following Jesus impacts every facet of our lives as he invades every area of our hearts. So today is specifically about how does following Jesus intersect with the way I carry myself externally and the way I mentally approach things internally. Thinking about people that I'm gonna interact with in my sphere of influence, thinking about my job, my classes, my family. We want to dig into our normal everyday lives today. And to do that, we're gonna focus on verses 14 through 16. But first, I just wanna invite us to read verses nine through 21 together and remind us and let you know if this is your first time here that one of the ch challenges for the series is that we would memorize verses nine through 21. Like, Why would we wanna memorize it? Because we wanna bury God's word in our hearts so the Holy Spirit can unearth it when we need it. So that way at 2.48 on Tuesday, when we're tempted to just fake it out like we love somebody, but don't really love them, that the Holy Spirit can say, verse nine, let love be genuine. And it's that moment where there's an intersection between God's word and our everyday lives. Don't, don't fake it right here. They deserve more than that. Don't, don't fake it. And the Holy Spirit is changing literally some of the most mundane moments of our lives. I talked to a friend this week. He's actually in our online church family. And he said that throughout this series, he started reading verses nine through 21 every day. Isn't that incredible? That he's taking time every day to read Romans 12, nine through 21 as he moves towards memorizing these verses. So let's read it aloud and together online. I invite you to, in your living room, just shout it out with us. Starting in verse nine, ready, go. Let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil, hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Do not be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. Contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. 
Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Before we dive into verse 14, here's a little warning. The intersection is so clear, it's uncomfortable. Just warning for you. The intersection is gonna be so clear, it's uncomfortable. Verse 14, bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Woo, let's just dive right in. Let's make sure we understand the terms here. Bless means that we ask God to extend his favor on someone's life. We're literally praying to God, asking him to improve someone else's life. And we're blessing those who persecute us. The word persecute means systematic oppression and trying to make someone else's life absolutely miserable, sometimes even leading to death. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. If you understand blessing, cursing is the opposite. It's saying, God, would you withhold your favor? Would you give her, would you give him what he or she deserves? It's tough, isn't it? Sometimes when God's word is tough, just soften it up. Say things like, ah, we're just gonna kind of contextualize it to the way we live. So here's perhaps the American version of Romans 12, 14. Bless those who bless you. When people like your Instagram post, when people comment on your photo, when people vote for the same candidate that you voted for, bless them but curse those who do not bless you. And when people do not like your photo, when they comment on somebody else's instead of yours, when you don't get invited to your friend party, when they didn't vote for your candidate, you unleash all the vitriol you've got inside of you and let them have it. Bless those who bless you and curse those who don't. I told you, it's so clear it's uncomfortable. It's how we do too often, isn't it? If we just face facts, when Paul said this, when Paul wrote this, and we're gonna talk about where he got it from in just a moment. When Paul wrote this, this went well beyond the accepted norms of Judaism in his time. As we read this, this goes well beyond the accepted normal practices of American Christianity, doesn't it? Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. You know what hits me right between the eyes? is the message paraphrase. Because it says it like this, no cursing under your breath. Oh, really? We're gonna get that personal about it? Because the way I'm wired, the eights in the room, Zach, you're gonna be like, no, I, why would I curse under my breath when I can say it out loud to you and just let you know how I'm feeling? I get it, eights. I'm not an eight, okay? And so for me, I can kind of like hold it together in the moment, and then I'm walking away and I'm like, or I get in the car as soon as I close the door and make sure like I'm not accidentally calling somebody. It's like, ah, Anybody with me on that? I can hold it together. And then I'm alone and I'm like, curses. But yet, it's so clear. Bless those who persecute you. 
ask for God's favor on their lives instead of asking God to withhold his favor. Who's Paul writing to? You know, context is king in history and in studying the Bible. We have to know the context. Paul's writing to what's probably several gatherings of the church in Rome. These gatherings are most likely composed of both Gentiles and Jews. They're scattered throughout the city. The book of, or this letter of Romans is written between 54 and 59. Some people say 56, some people say 57, but in this range of 54 to 59 AD. And guess who the emperor of Rome was when Paul wrote this? Nero. If you don't know who Nero is, you can Google him real quick. Literally infamous for how he tortured and murdered Christians. Most people believe that he's actually the emperor that killed Paul. <laughs> eventually. So Paul writes to a group of oppressed people living in the same city as Nero and says, oh yeah, bless those who persecute you. So how would they have read this? I wonder if some of them might've been like, oh man, I was really hoping that as Jesus's teachings got passed down, this part would be deleted. We wouldn't have to worry about it. Because the problem with this, the reason it's so clear that it's uncomfortable, the reason there's no wiggle room is because these words are straight from the mouth of Jesus. In Matthew chapter five, verse 43, Jesus says, you have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy, to which on the inside we're like, come on, I can get behind that. But he goes on, but I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Ah, we can't get around it. So to lean in even more, a great question, a helpful question to ask is, how would an oppressed person read this? Because Paul was writing to oppressed people. Last week, Randy and Dorley Gordon, leaders in our church, led some of us through a time of prayer for the international persecuted church. As we're talking about situations where a mom has to take her kids, separate from her husband, and literally leave the country because she's threatened by, check this out, other family members. And then they come back because it's like, well, it's worth the risk so that we can point those family members to Jesus. We're talking about the real threat of death and, and people you know dying. How would the persecuted church read this? We have a partnership with a local church in Chernovoda, Romania. And this church is sometimes looked down upon by the other churches because they work with the gypsies. See, in Romania, there's systemic racism against the gypsies. What's amazing is for those of us who've been there is that like, I often can't tell the difference between a gypsy and like an accepted Romanian. Like I can't tell, but oh, they know. They know facial features and skin differences. I mean, it's unbelievable. So how would a gypsy in Romania read this? How would a person of color in America read this? How would someone fighting for justice, for any type of justice all throughout the world in our own backyard or as far away from here as you get, how would this person read this? Well, we can tell you the impact of these words. These words written by Paul, which echo what Jesus said. They have literally transformed the fight for justice in our world. These words have been inspirational to world leaders like Gandhi, Nelson Mandela, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. So here's what we know, here's an important clarification. This verse is not saying that we should stop fighting for justice. It's talking about how we should fight for justice. 
That as we fight for justice, somehow through the power of Jesus, we bless those who persecute us. We bless and do not curse them. So as the Holy Spirit is speaking to all of us watching, even to those of you who are watching later, to those of us in the room, and he's showing us an intersection between how we treat somebody and how we don't live out this verse. Let's lean into that. He's speaking to us. Let's, let's not run away from the fact that the Holy Spirit wants to change how we interact with people. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. I would like to say that it gets easier, but the reality is it doesn't. The next verse says, rejoice with those who rejoice, weep with those who weep. If there were one word to characterize this verse, it would be this word, empathy, <laughs> empathy. We, we could say it like this. We stand in people's joy and we sit in people's pain. That we stand in people's joy and we sit in people's pain. That when someone is going through something that I don't understand, I don't dismiss it, I actually lean in and I sit in their pain with them. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Now, before we go further, if you're feeling overwhelmed, so am I. If you're feeling like this is impossible, it is. And that's why what Paul is writing here stands under the shadow of the cross. How in the world can we bless those who persecute us? How, do, how does anybody, especially oppressed people throughout the world, how do they live that out? Because it's what Jesus did. Because in Romans chapter five, here's some words used to describe you and me, that we're weak, ungodly, sinners, enemies of God. And every single one of those labels is accurate. But you know what the heart of Romans chapter five, that section of it is? That while we were weak, ungodly, sinners, and enemies of God, Jesus died for us. He didn't just say love your enemies, he died for his enemies. So as we think about how we live this out, we go, Jesus, I need you. I must be changed by the transformative power of the cross in order for me to live this out. And as we think about empathy, we go back to John chapter 11. I encourage you to read this phenomenal story. What does it mean to rejoice with those who weep, to, or rejoice with those who rejoice? To weep with those who weep? Well, in John 11, Jesus shows up late to an event. The event was the death of one of his closest friends, Lazarus. His two sisters, Mary and Martha, come running out and they've got questions and they're saying, Jesus, you could have healed him, but you're late. Like, what's the deal? And here's what Jesus doesn't do. Jesus doesn't go, Mary and Martha, quit crying. I'm gonna heal your brother, chill out. I'm God, I can show up whenever I want, I can do whatever I want. Come on, Lazarus, let's go. Somebody pour him a cup of coffee. Now Jesus, knowing that he's gonna resurrect Lazarus from the dead, weeps with Mary and Martha. He sits in their pain. The reality is, the church should be the go-to place for learning how to empathize. When the world is thinking, man, what does it look like to empathize with people? They should literally come running to our gatherings, come running to our community groups, come running to us in the workplace and go, man, you empathize on a level like nothing I've ever seen. How do you do it? And we could say, because it's what Jesus does for us. So for some of us, 
We need to rejoice with those who rejoice. We need to stand in someone's joy because we are down and their joy can lift us up. For others of us, we need to sit in someone's pain and weep with those who weep. But our posture as Jesus followers should be oozing empathy. He goes on in verse 16 to say, live in harmony with one another. This phrase literally means to be of one mind. It doesn't mean uniformity of thought, but it means that we have a common purpose. It means that we're united in Jesus. <laughs> it's, it's the first lyrics that we sang. People come together. Strange as neighbors, our blood is one. And what's that whole song about? Jesus. We as the church should be the picture of unity that the world is looking for. When people are like, what does unity look like? She'd be like, look at the church. And Jesus is the example. I encourage you, if you've never done this, to do a little bit of historical research on the background of the disciples. In particular, one wanted to overthrow the government and one worked for the government. And he said, come on, guys, let's be friends. Because they could live in harmony with one another through a common purpose of following Jesus. But here's the thing. We're never gonna be able to live in harmony with one another if we stop reading there. Because the next line says, do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. That our pride is an obstacle to living in harmony, to living in unity. And think about how pride affects our posture. You know, C.S. Lewis talks about how humility is thinking of ourselves less and so the reality is with pride, oftentimes we walk into a room and we're thinking about ourselves. So as we carry ourselves and our mental approach, we're like, okay, what does he think about me? What does she think about me? What are they doing? Are they looking at me? Is, and do I look okay? Am I carrying myself well? Like what's going on? And it's all about me. And when it's all about me, I can't lean in and empathize with anybody else. And when it's all about me, I'm also way more likely to take something that you meant very unintentionally as an intentional insult and suddenly I'm back to bless those who bless me and curse those who don't. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. There's actually ambiguity in the original language here. And I think it's on purpose because I think there's two real meanings Paul's trying to get at. The first meaning is, hey, do menial tasks. Due to our posture, is there anything in our sphere of influence in where we work, where we live, where we go to class, are there any tasks that we're too good to do? Because our posture should be, I am humble enough to serve in whatever it takes. No menial task is too low for me since my Jesus washed the feet of someone who was about to go betray him. The double meaning is also associate with the lowly, make friends with the overlooked. Middle schoolers and high schoolers, I think this is so applicable to you because in almost every single classroom, in the cafeteria, in basically every school, there's those people that don't quite fit in. You know, you have your different groups, and, but then there's that person or there's a couple people and maybe she sits over here and he sits over there. Are you willing to sacrifice time with your in-group to go make friends with the overlooked? I think about Nicolette, a young lady from our church who's training to go serve overseas in missions. I had a conversation with her this week as she's living in Clarkston, Georgia, which is a hub of refugees in our nation. She's doing ministry there. And here's what Nicolette said to me. She said, man, Jesus would live here. 
She's like, all the people in the New Testament you read about that Jesus spent time with, they're all here. And Nicolette is sacrificing her life to associate with the overlooked. Are we? Do not be haughty. Associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Question, as you think about that, who's your? You don't have to answer that loud, it's rhetorical. But as you hear that, who is your? For most of us, because we are Western thinkers in America, apologies to our international friends <laughs> who are watching this. For a whole lot of us, we read this as never be wise in my own sight. I should never be wise in my own sight because our default as Western thinkers is to individualize things. Here's the problem. Jesus and Paul both lived in a mindset and a culture where the default wasn't individual, the default was collective. Here's another problem. In the Greek, the words are plural. What Paul's really saying is never be wise in our own sight. He's telling the churches, these little gatherings in the city of Rome, Let's not think that we're better than everybody else. For us, as public church, that means we can't think we've got the corner on church and we've got it figured out. And look, I've criticized other churches. That's why this is hard for me. This is why the Holy Spirit's working on me. But here's what Paul would tell us. The way we talk about other churches matter. Go back to verse 10. We should be outdoing other churches in showing honor, not critiquing them, not being wise on our own side. Oh, come here, we got it all figured out. Never be wise in our own sight. Here's the other application. Paul is writing to churches that have every reason to be divided because they're composed of two ethnic groups, the Jews and the Gentiles, that pre-Jesus hated each other. And so Paul's saying, hey, Gentiles, don't be wise in your own sight. Don't think you're better than the Jews. Hey, Jews, don't be wise in your own sight. Don't think you're better than the, the Gentiles. So for those of us watching who are Americans, let's not be wise in our own sight. Let's not think we've got this whole world thing figured out and we're better than everybody else. If you're white, if you're black, if you're brown, let's not think that our ethnic group, our racial group has it figured out. Let's not be wise in our own sight, collectively. One of the most poignant examples of this verse that I could think of is a friend of mine, Micah Ogle. He's part of a church plant in, a, well, what, it's a 10-year-old church plant, incredibly successful. Jesus has been doing amazing things, changing lives in Las Vegas, Nevada. Micah and I have been good friends for a real long time. And this summer, in the midst of all the racial tension, Micah and I were talking about it. And he said that a black pastor on staff of their church basically just said, look, I need to share something. I need to speak to the church. And as Micah was listening to him speak, here's what Micah told me. He said, I was sitting there going, it's not my job to determine whether he's right or wrong. It's my job to empathize. That in that moment that we as white people, it's our job to empathize, not to judge, but to empathize. And you could apply that to whatever ethnic group you belong to. There's moments where it'd be so easy for us to judge, but instead, don't be wise in your own sight. Because when we're wise in our own sight, we can't live in unity with each other. <laughs> but let's listen and let's sit in people's pain with them. How do we do this? We look to the shadow of the cross. 
This is what Jesus did. I encourage you to read Philippians 2, 5 through 11 this week. And what you're gonna see is that Jesus took step down after step down after step down after step down to continue to lower himself in order to lift others up. Eventually, he died on the cross for those who were ungodly, weak, sinners, and enemies. And it specifically says that Jesus did not consider his status as something to be gained. He didn't show up and be like, I'm the king of the universe. No, he showed up and he served. Never be wise in your own sight. (laughs) How do we live this out? We must experience the transformative power of the cross. So here's the action for us. And the action is something to actually do off campus. We're gonna dismiss in just a couple minutes. And the action is that all of us would go home and take communion. It's the first action, there's gonna be two, that we'd go home and we'd take communion. And here's a passage that you could read as you take communion, Luke 22, 14 through 20. If you're unfamiliar with communion, here's what communion is, that we take some bread, we take a cup, and that we reflect on the cross of Jesus. He is our pattern. He's our perfect model. And only through the transformative power of what he did on the cross can we begin to take a step towards living this out. We're not gonna be perfect, but he invites us to take a step towards living out Romans 12, 14 through 16. So for those of us in the room, we dismiss in just a moment, right outside, there's gonna be communion supplies. I encourage you just to take that. And when you get home, to take communion. It'd be so easy, but oh, I'll set that over here and I'll do that Monday. Let's do it today. Maybe you want to read even the full crucifixion and resurrection account in Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John. Let's reflect on the transformative power of the cross. For our online family, it's honestly easier for you because you can just go open the fridge, open the cabinet, and grab whatever's there. And as soon as this is over, you can have a moment to take communion, to read through Luke 22, or to read one of the crucifixion and resurrection accounts and to reflect on the cross. And as we take communion, let's evaluate our posture. That's the second action. Let's evaluate our posture. Let's think about the way we carry ourselves and our mental approach towards people and our responsibilities. And let's measure that not against what someone else is doing, but against Romans 12, 14 through 16. And when we see all the long lists of shortcomings, I don't have time to list all of mine. When we see all that, let's lean into the transformative power of the cross saying, Jesus, I can't do this, but through your spirit, I can Would you empower me to take a step towards living out Romans 12, 14 through 16? And for those of you who are here who don't follow Jesus, the invitation is simple. Do you want to follow a Jesus who didn't say, get it together, clean yourself up, and then we'll talk? No, who died for us when we were at our worst. And if you wanna talk about that, I'm gonna be right here and someone from our prayer team will be outside on the front lawn. Hopefully, the end of this gathering feels a little incomplete. That's the goal. Because it completes when we go home and have an intersection between following Jesus in our everyday lives by taking communion at home and evaluating our posture. So I'm gonna pray for us. If you guys wanna sit in here for a moment and reflect, journal, you are definitely welcome to do that. And as I said, as you leave, there's communion supplies outside. Jesus, There's absolutely no way we could live this out without you. So I pray that as we take time to lean in 
to what you did on the cross, to your transformative power, change us, transform us, and help us take a step towards living this out, towards living with your posture. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. See you guys next week.